Welcome into another episode of Grinding True Crimes. This is a bonus episode featuring the victim impact statements from the Majority Murders in Rancho Cordova, the couple that was murdered in cold blood. Also uh, attributed to the East Area Rapist Golden State Killer, where their families will address the Joseph James D'Angelo uh, directly in court. Also, the family members of Robert Offerman and Debbie Manning will also address Mr. D'Angelo, and as well as uh, Debbie Domingo's daughter, which she was murdered along with Gregory Sanchez in a, a very violent murder rape that happened also in Rancho Cordova. Enjoy. Are we ready to proceed? Yes, Your Honor. All right, very good. Thank you. Uh, we're returning uh, back uh, to additional victims, uh, victims' family on uh, charged and uncharged acts committed by Mr. D'Angelo in the County of Sacramento. Mr. D'Angelo is present with counsel. Can the attorneys for the people of County of Sacramento restate their names for the record, please? Yes, Your Honor. Good morning. Amy Holiday on behalf of the people. Good morning, Your Honor. Chin Hull on behalf of the people. All right. Thank you. On June 29th, uh, 2020, the defendant entered guilty pleas to the following crimes. Count two, charge of murder in the first degree of Katie Majori, which occurred on February 2nd, 1978, in the County of Sacramento. Count three, the charge of murder in the first degree of Brian Majori, which occurred February 2nd, 1978, in the County of Sacramento. Is there any member of the victim's family that wish to be heard as to either counts two or three? Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning, sir. I'd like to thank you and the court for this opportunity. I would like to also thank each and every law enforcement personnel involved in getting us here today. I'd like to give a special acknowledgement to FBI agent Marcus Newsom. He was a lifeline and lifesaver to me in the years leading up to this monster's arrest. I'd like to give a special thank you to Mei-Ling Chong and Ann Tran and our prosecuting attorneys, Mr. Tin Ho and Ms. Amy Holliday. I hope you all know how much you have meant to me and my family and will continue to mean to us. Finally, I want to thank my rock. My wife. She's been married to me for 39 years of this 42 year ordeal and always gives me strength. And if she can't find the right words, she always knows when to tell me. Call your grandbabies and, and find your smile. Your Honor, my family and I and many other families are all here to see the terror and evil that Mr. D'Angelo brought to so many finally come to an end. We can all start to put this horrible ordeal into its final stage of healing. He robbed my sister Katie and brother-in-law Brian of young, their young lives. He took away their chance to have a family of their own. He took, my, uh, he took away my brother's Keith's family's chance to get to know and love their aunt and uncle. He took away my wife and children and grandchildren's chance to know and love them. His mistake was he had no idea how much Katie and Brian were loved. They have remained alive in all our hearts. 
I recently learned something else. My sister Katie, who just turned 20 four days before D'Angelo chased her down and shot and killed her in cold blood, she touched so many others in just her 20 short years, not just our family with love and kindness, but so many friends also. I have found out that so many others have kept her in their hearts the whole 42 years since he took her life. So you see, Katie and Brian were special and we all loved them so much. D'Angelo, you hurt our family and so many other families so much, but now that part's over. You no longer live in the shadows. We all know who you are. You lurked in the dark so you could prey on innocent victims. Well, now you are the prey, D'Angelo, and you can look over your shoulder the rest of your life. You can stop your silly little act of being weak and feeble and pay for what you did. You're not important. We will remember Katie and Brian for the rest of our lives, but after you're sentenced, you will be a nobody. You are not worth any more of my family's time. People like to say that now we can have closure. To me, closure means that there's an end. There is no closure for us because nothing changes. It doesn't bring Katie or Brian back. I guess it does bring closure for D'Angelo as this is the end for him. You can't hurt anyone ever again. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, sir. Is there anybody else that wish to be heard as it counts two or three? Yes, Your Honor. That was Ken Smith, who was Katie Smith's brother, Katie Majori. This is Karen Smith, her aunt. Very good, thank you. Good morning. Good morning, ma'am. I'm here on behalf of Katie and Brian. They are my niece and nephew. They had everything going for them. Brian was just gonna be shipped to Germany with the Air Force. And they were all excited because Katie got to go too. They loved life and everybody loved them in the 18 months that they were married. I was actually pregnant with my son when Katie got married. So on January 29th, 1978, Katie calls and says, Aunt Karen, you gotta come over, it's my birthday. Which I did, I said, well, Tommy's down for his nap. Well, wake him up, come on over. So we did. So we sat there and we had birthday cake. Katie put Tommy in front of the cake because he was very special to Katie and his fingers got right in there. She stands there and licks his fingers and said, now this is a birthday. So sure enough, oh, I said that. It got later in the evening, so Katie and Brian had to leave and come home to Sacramento. Who knew that that would be the last time we see him? But on February 2nd, 1978, it was a parent's worst nightmare. The Air Force came to our shop and told the father, Katie's father, and someone had told my sister Darlene so what my husband calls, because we were in business, get over there, something's happened. I had no idea that it was Katie and Brian had just been killed. So naturally we all went. Kenny, my nephew, he was a junior in high school, ready to play soft baseball 
from McLean High School. Keith was only 10. Keith and Kenny no longer had a sister or brother-in-law to share the many years of happiness. They never got to have any more birthdays, no more holidays. Their grandkids never got to see him. Their kids never got to see him. But believe me, we all know who Katie and Brian are. It seems like yesterday we will, it, it still seems like yesterday when this all happened, we will miss them to the end of time. The only thing I'm happy for is I got to live long enough to see this happen. I had met Mr. Majori at the cancer center a week before he passed. And his last words to me was, I just wanted to live long enough to see this. Well, Mr. Majori, I did. And I'm here to thank him and his family, our family, the Clumps, the Smith, the Majoris, for everything and all the support we've always had. And especially to all the people that have worked on this case. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. Your Honor, we do have one final message from Loretta Majori. She is Brian Majori's elderly mother. She cannot be here today because of her frail health. She said that she has nothing good to say about Joseph D'Angelo. So she will say nothing at all to him. Thank you, Mr. Hill. Does that conclude Sacramento's um, cases, at least for today? Yes, Your Honor. All right, thank you. May we have a moment to transition to the next county? Certainly. Good morning. Uh, like I said, this matter is on a calendar to hear uh, from victims and victims' family. On June 29th, the defendant entered a plea of guilty to the following crimes. Count four, the charge of murder in the first degree of Deborah Manning, which occurred December 30th, 1979 in the county of Santa Barbara. Count five, charge of murder in the first degree of Robert Offerman, which occurred on December 30th, 1979 in the county of Santa Barbara. Is there any member of the victim's family that wish to be heard as to either court counts four or five? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Um, I'll be reading uh, Natasha Holliday and Roseanne Howard's victim impact statement for Deborah Manning. Very good, thank you. Dr. Deborah Alexandra Manning was our best friend. The three of us met at the Veterans Administration Hospital and Children's Hospital of Boston where Allie, as she liked to be called, was finishing her neuropsychology internship. She had the gift of intuition that served her patients well. Allie was beautiful and brilliant. She brought joy and healing energy wherever she went. On December 30th, 1979, Joseph James D'Angelo ended Allie's life, a life that gave so much hope and so much light. In the early morning hours, D'Angelo broke in while she slept. Allie was tightly bound, brutally raped, and then turned face down on the bed. He proceeded to murder her with two close range shots to the back of her head. Her boyfriend, Robert Offerman, was found on the floor beside the bed with his body bludgeoned, beaten, and shot four times. Impervious to the carnage and killings, D. 
D'Angelo bizarrely ate their leftover Christmas turkey and burglarized the condo. On the Thursday night before her death, Allie called us and said, I feel like I'm being followed. I have Bob's big yellow Mercedes parked at the front door. It's like a large yellow lion protecting me. The next day at lunch with her lawyer, Allie wrote out a holographic will on her napkin. In less than 48 hours, she was dead. We often wondered whether Allie would be alive today if only we had insisted that she call the police to report a stalker. Perhaps she'd be married with children and grandchildren and have an accomplished professional record with published journal articles and books. Instead, her vibrant life lay wasted by the obsessive madness of Joseph James D'Angelo, a man we find hard to forgive. Allie's not here to speak, but we, Roseanne Howard and Natasha Holliday, are here to provide a statement on her behalf. Almost 41 years later, the sordid, tortured, and violent circumstances under which our dear friend died continues to haunt us. We miss Allie. While we have grown our own families and had our own professional accomplishments, Allie was denied those opportunities. Her future was stolen. We regularly miss her friendship in our lives and her presence around our children and grandchildren. Allie's death not only reached deep into our lives, but cut across the Santa Maria community of her patients, friends, and mother causing her mental and physical demise. When going through her family therapy office after her murder, we found her patients heartfelt letters and drawings as a testament to how her patients valued her. Her vulnerable patients, some whom were children, were left to cope with Allie's horrific rape and murder. Their doctor of light and hope and our best and loving friend was gone forever. In closing, thank you to those who never gave up on their pursuit of justice, the Northern and Southern California police, the journalists and the bloggers who kept the public eye focused on the case and the prosecutors in the Northern and Southern District Attorney's Office of California and their staff. Finally, we would like to acknowledge the strength and courage of all the survivors and their families and partners who came forward with their testimony. You are all real heroes. Thank you, Roseanne Howard and Natasha Holliday. Thank you, Council. Uh, is there any other victim impacts on counts four and five? There is not. Good morning, Your Honor. Good morning. Before I present my statement, I want to thank you, both of the legal teams, all of the district attorneys and investigators who have brought us to this point. I especially want to thank the staff in the courtrooms and at the Sacramento County Jail for maintaining custody of inmate D'Angelo, for assuring that he made it here 
to appear in court this week. My heart is racing. Bear with me. Take your time. Man. Thank you. I also want to thank my husband, my daughter, my brother, who are all here with me today, as well as my longtime friend and support person, Melanie Barbeau. I couldn't do this without you. My circle of support is enormous and I'm grateful. My name is Debbie Domingo McMullen and I am the surviving daughter of Sherry Domingo, murdered 72781 by Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. I'm speaking here today, not directly to D'Angelo or for his benefit. I am here today to have on the record the repercussions that his actions have had on my life. Maybe you, Judge Bowman, or you, my fellow survivors, so many survivors, will understand. Maybe some of you, the public who hear this either now or later, will be able to get a slightly clearer glimpse into what survivors of murdered victims endure. I will not speak directly about my own experiences only, but to honor the memories of Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez. Mom was only 35 when she died, but she was energetic and stylish and strangers often took us for sisters. Greg was even younger, just 27. With a quick wit, stunning good looks and a charming smile, he was always busy doing something productive and fun, fixing up his old 57 Chevy playing softball with his brothers, mixing recordings of our favorite popular dance music. These two people created the easy listening soundtrack that still plays in my head and my heart. I cherish the reflections of a time when there was always sunshine and music, even when things weren't perfect. Mom and Greg were two remarkable, young, vibrant people who were denied the opportunity to even be breathing today. When I sat down to write this statement, my first instinct was to document the ups and downs my life has taken in the nearly 40 years since the homicides. It seemed a daunting task. Only now am I realizing the magnitude of the impact that losing my mother and her sweet boyfriend in such a violent way had on my young life and on my view of the world. When I took my first steps toward the yellow crime scene tape around our house in 1981, I knew my life was changing. You can't be stopped by police and yellow tape and not be stunned. It was surreal, almost like slow motion, but over in a flash. Life would never be the same. 
but I was only 15 years old and unable to truly grasp that concept. My mom and my beloved Greg were dead. The house looked picture perfect from the outside, but I was told that on the inside, the scene was grisly. I was not permitted back into the house ever, not to look for my cat, not to pack my bedroom, not to verify for myself that what the police said had happened was even true. I didn't realize it then, but I had watched my mom and Greg dance carefree across our living room for the last time. The next few hours and days were bizarre. I called my dad who lived several hours away. I called my maternal grandmother out of state and I talked to the police. I was a fragile teenager whose world had just been turned upside down, but I had to answer questions from a stranger in a polygraph examination. Do you know who killed your mother? No. Did you kill your mother? Oh God, are they really asking me this? No. I helped the police sort out which items from the home stayed in the house and which I would take to my new home at dad's. I attended a memorial service for my mom at our church. I'm sure there must have been a service for Greg too, but I don't remember having the chance to really say a good goodbye to his parents or his brothers. There has always been an emptiness in my heart from that lingering loss. Not just of Greg, but of his beautiful family. Within just a few days, I said goodbye to my friends and left for Southern California, where we had mom's funeral and interment. I had the guest books from both of her services, but no clear memories of those or of her burial. Oddly, I do remember helping my grandfather pick out her casket and helping my grandmother design and order her headstone. I remember how devastated they both were having to bury their own child. I turned 16 a few days after mom was buried. There was a small impromptu party at a pizza place, I think, but I don't really remember that either. In the mix of it all, I remember feeling lost, but I also recall being so thankful that I had a safe place to land. I had already lived from time to time with my dad and my stepmom in San Diego County. It was an environment where I was taken care of and loved. I had brothers and extended family there. I had friends at school and at church 
It was almost as if I was plucked up out of the horrors that had taken place in Santa Barbara and set down into a whole new life in Southern California. The only problem was I wasn't a whole new me. I was a traumatized teenager reeling from the horror and pretending to be an okay version of me. How are you doing, honey? People would ask. I'm fine. I'll be okay. Oh, and I never cried. I did have dreams, not really nightmares, but definitely disturbing dreams. I dreamt that instead of being away on the night of the murders, I was actually at home in my bed upstairs at the far end of the house. In my dreams, I heard the intruder enter our home. I heard my mom scream, the gunshot, and a scuffle. In that dream, I picked up the phone next to my bed and called for help. Police arrived and everyone survived. Of course, each time I had this dream, I woke up to the grim reality that my mom and Greg were indeed dead and there was nothing I could do to change that. By the end of the first year after the murders, I stopped waiting for calls from detectives and hoping for new leads. It was just too depressing. I gave up on the case and tried to distract myself with normal teenage activities. Somehow, by the skin of my teeth, I finished my last two years of high school and then it started, adulthood, without my mom to lead the way. I did have a great support system, don't get me wrong, but I didn't have my mom or the skills to express how much I missed her. When D'Angelo stole my mom from me, he didn't just take away a person from my daily routine. He stole my vision of the future. He took away my desire and my passion to look ahead, to set goals, to strive for success. He left me empty. For the 20 years that followed my mother's murder, I lived in a series of half-hearted attempts to just get by. I knew the case was cold and I resigned myself to the fact that it would probably never be solved. A hard pill to swallow, but I had to just stuff it all and find a way to go on. I had always been a good student and it was assumed that I would attend a university and have a successful career. Doing what? I have no idea. But I definitely knew that potential was there. After mom's murder, I failed to develop that university mindset. In fact, I had a hard time even graduating high school at all. I followed a boyfriend's lead and enlisted in the army. The marketing phrase at the time was, be all you can be. Ironically, I only served a short-lived, respectable yet unremarkable term of service. I became a parent at 20, but rather than embracing that role and being intentional about raising the adults of the future, I simply took care of my kids and I didn't do that very well. Early into motherhood, I started to sink into a depression that would go undiagnosed and untreated for many years. 
By the time I was 24, I had stumbled into drug use and that started a fast downward spiral. Ultimately, a decade was lost in a lifestyle of degradation, abuse, neglect for myself and my family. All the while I knew deep inside that I had problems for which I needed to seek help, but my self-esteem and confidence had fallen so low, I lacked the gumption to make change. Mom would have helped. In fact, if mom were alive then, she would have nagged at me early on to stop settling for less. She would have prompted me to dream a little more. She would have supported me and guided me towards solutions. She would have prodded me into admitting that I needed help. She would have relentlessly reminded me that I could do better, that I could be better, that I deserved better. She would have led by example, a life of victory, no matter the circumstances. Her optimism was her gift along with her unfailing love and determination. Even Greg, with his talent for coaching and encouraging, would surely have shared some words of motivation. I can almost hear him. Come on, Deborah D, you're stronger than you think. Fortunately and miraculously, God found a way to reach me even without mom and Greg at my side. When I was 30, my children were taken into the custody of Child Protective Services. I looked into the mirror to see myself, single, childless, unemployed, addicted to methamphetamine, hopeless, homeless. I worked with CPS and the family court system on a family reunification plan. Their requirements for me were simple enough, get off drugs, find a reliable job and maintain a suitable home. Unfortunately, I was so broken that I could only typically achieve one or maybe two of those objectives for a short period only. Sustaining all three at once was just too much for me to handle. I felt like I was running on a treadmill and juggling at the same time. The speed and the incline of the treadmill kept changing at random intervals. I was off balance, trying to stay upright at just the right pace without dropping the balls. It seemed impossible. I lost hope several times and would have considered suicide if it weren't for the fact that I had children who were desperately waiting for me, waiting for me to straighten myself out and bring them home Waiting for, waiting for the security of a life with mom that every child deserves. After several years in that miserable cycle of despair, I experienced a true miracle. I had an encounter with Jesus Christ that not only saved my life, but put me on the path to restoration with my children. By the time I was 34, I was clean and sober, working full time, 
and welcoming my kids into the home that I provided. Where'd you go? <laughs> <laughs> A few years after that, the unthinkable happened. Out of the blue, I learned that my mom and Greg's murders might be part of a series. I learned that there was an investigation into the possible connections and an active search for the unknown serial predator. I am a firm believer in God's perfect timing. So now, in retrospect, it makes sense to me that only after I was ready and able to engage was I made privy to the fact that investigation was active again. I had spent the first 20 years believing that the truth of my mom and Greg's murders would remain a mystery forever. I have now spent the better part of the second 20 years working toward helping to publicize and solve that mystery. At first, I would just dig online, lurk on internet message boards, watch and read anything I could get my hands on that discussed these crimes. In some ways, it was therapeutic, rehashing memories and playing my small part in the hunt. However, it was during these years that the true nightmares emerged. The more I learned about the crime scene, the more vivid my dreams became. The worst were the ones where I was the proverbial fly on the wall in mom's bedroom. I could hear the door scratch its way across the shag carpet. And I could see Greg in his nakedness and in the dark fighting for his life against a masked intruder who was fully dressed and armed to the teeth with flashlight, gun, and bludgeon. I could see my mom lying naked on her side with her hands and feet bound tightly together behind her, hogtied, shivering in terror as she watched Greg being pulverized and knowing she was next. Did she beg for her life? Did the monster say anything to her? Did he reveal his face before smashing hers? I considered enlisting the help of a medium to ask mom if she could tell us who he was. Those years were tough. I would wake up drenched in sweat and then make a beeline for my laptop and double down on my efforts to help identify the monster and raise public awareness. The good news is that I look, I'm sorry, I can't see through my tears. Mm. Yes. <laughs> oh man, see this does get to good news. The good news is that as I learned more and more and started interacting with people who were also passionately seeking answers, my mission evolved. For the first time in my life, I had clear-headed laser focus 
on an important goal. I was no longer just an orphaned daughter without a shred of hope. I became a voice and an act an advocate for the many, many victims in this series of crimes. I don't know if D'Angelo was ever aware of my efforts to find him out. But if he didn't know my name before, he'll know it now. Today I am Debbie Domingo McMullen, surviving daughter of Sherry Domingo, whose murderer now has a name and a face. I am no longer plagued by images of a masked faceless monster raping terrorizing and bludgeoning my beautiful mother. I am not that lost teenager anymore. Today, I am in the room with the pathetic excuse of a man who will now finally be held accountable for his actions. If I had my way, he would be shivering, blindfolded, naked and exposed every moment from now on. I'll settle for caged, shackled, humiliated. Oh, and nervous as hell, because everyone around him in prison will know exactly who he is and what deplorable things he has done. Today, the devil loses and justice wins. Today, I am not just a broken survivor of a cold case murder. Today, I am a victor in the battle between good and evil. I am the wife of a wonderful, wonderful God-fearing man who has stood by my side as we have nurtured our family, which includes five grown children and eight grandchildren. And my sister survivor, Gay Hardwick, said it yesterday. That's what a real man does. I have 22 years of sobriety under my belt. I have parents, in-laws, and extended family who have never faltered in their love and support. I have a dedicated family of faith with whom I share my Christian walk. I have an amazing career in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice where, believe it or not, I am able to minister daily to convicted felons, and they also minister to me. Best of all, I have an entire family that I never would have known if it weren't for this whole ugly series of crimes. I have my case family made up of investigators, lawyers, citizen detectives, victim advocates, media representatives, and of course, my precious fellow survivors. It is undeniable that the early loss of my mother had a significant impact on the choices I made in my young life. I have lived the past 39 years without her close influence and guidance. However, I would never try to blame past trauma for my own poor decisions. I alone am responsible for my own ways and deeds, just as D'Angelo is responsible for his. I have spent years owning up to my wrongs and doing my best to make amends. Now it is D'Angelo's turn. 
Whether that can or will happen remains to be seen. When D'Angelo viciously murdered my mom, he altered my vision of the future, but he didn't ruin it altogether. D'Angelo stole a lot from me, that's for sure. But I have to be honest. God has restored my life to something so full and so beautiful that even the devil himself could not destroy. Despite the fact that I had to grow up without Greg and my mom, and despite my own mistakes, I managed to become a responsible, caring human being. One with a clear conscience, who nurtures and supports others, and who will always speak the truth with love. Despite the fact that D'Angelo killed my mom and deeply hurt my family, I became part of another family. I am not alone, ever. D'Angelo may have tried to spread evil into my world and even into my soul, but he failed. And whatever justice is meted out by this judicial system, I believe that it pales in comparison to the ultimate justice that awaits him when he leaves this earthly life. Tonight, D'Angelo will toss and turn on that cold steel bunk in his cell, knowing the trauma that he caused to hundreds, including his own family. He will spend eternity alone wishing he had lived his life differently. Tonight, I will sleep soundly. And in my dreams, I will see my mom and Greg still smiling, still dancing. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am.